Welcome to Movie Catch-Up, a podcast where two friends work on reducing their movie backlog. Each episode, we catch up on a previously unseen movie recommended by the other. I'm Greg. And I'm Leanne. And the lambs are still screaming. This is a very special horror-themed episode. Today we're talking about The Cabin in the Woods and The Silence of the Lambs. Before we get into the movies, let's talk a little bit about genre. Leanne, what's your relationship to horror? When I was a teenager, I was really into horror. I'd seen a good number of things. Uh, I remember I went and I saw the movie Jeepers Creepers in theaters when I was in high school. Uh, on the regular, friends and I, we would watch things like uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and similar type things. Um, other movies God. that certainly fall into that category that I don't have as good a memory of. But as I've gotten older, my appreciation for genre has sort of shifted uh, more away from like the slasher kind of movie into like psychological thriller type things less like on-screen violence and more like the suggestion of violence if you know what i mean yeah but like it's it's a good genre for exploring you know different types of stories although they tend to sort of follow the same kind of narrative in terms of like framing things as monstrous and um the types of characters that are involved like that's the reason why Scream and similar movies are so successful because they really play on these very common overused tropes in this in this particular genre. Yeah. What about you? Um, so I'm definitely like very much the opposite of that where I grew up not watching any horror. I was the biggest scaredy cat and I had tons of friends who were really, really into horror, especially in high school. I remember the only real like horror movie I got dragged to that I I don't know why I said yes to going to. Super dumb of me. I went to like one of the 3D Final Destination movies in theaters. Oh, I definitely saw yeah. the Final Destination movies in theaters. Oh, I had nightmares. It deeply terrified me. Like at the time I couldn't watch blood really or anything. Like the suggestion of horror alone was enough to get me like to cry and like run away. I was very afraid of everything. Also, when I was really young watching I guess I wasn't really young. I don't know what I would have been when it came out, but Deep Blue Sea, like okay. the really, really shitty shark movie, it scared the crap out of me as a kid. It like gave me long standing nightmares and I was super afraid of water and like it really did me in that movie. I don't know. I I was so afraid of things. Wow. And it wasn't until somewhat recently, I would say maybe around it's probably probably around twenty fourteen ish that I started to dip my toes into the genre a bit more. And it was mostly just because of zombie movies. And by accident, I watched certain like comedy horror uh, more so getting into that. Nothing really horror. Like I watched all like the scary movies and things like that, which weren't at all scary. Mm -hmm. um, but then I watched Shaun of the Dead and that was one of the big ones that got me into it. It was still scary. Like there's some, some scary bits in Shaun of the Dead, but it was really funny. And I, there was all these references in it that I didn't get because I hadn't seen them. And I kind of started branching out a bit more. I got really into the Walking Dead franchise, which was really good. Like the video games, the comics, and the show, which kind of got me into the George Romero zombie movies the of the Living Dead series, which were like created zombies as a genre, basically. Yeah. Uh, I got really into that. That got me into things like the Resident Evil games and the movies, which are now my favorite movie series of all time. Was Resident Evil. Love it. Stuff like Anna and the Apocalypse more recently, like a fun horror zombie musical. Stuff like Zombieland, uh, Zombies of Mass Destruction, some of the great zombie comedies. 
I just loved all things zombie. I don't know really know why. I think a lot of it is just it's such a good way to dissect humanity. Like you take everything away from humanity and you really see what they have. They're really great to kind of shine a light on social issues as well. You find a lot of socially conscious zombie media out there that does a really good job. Since then, I've kind of started dipping my toes, um, mostly to like slasher stuff a little bit. So kind of the opposite of you, where I kind of got into slashers after. So I watched all the Scream movies, obviously, and those were those are still, I love them. I watch them every year. I got more into things like Sleepaway Camp, Friday the 13th, um, some of the classic slashers, stuff that's really campy I like a lot. So some of the campier slashers I really like. I still, to this day, can't do the paranormal activities and the saws, Texas Chainsaw Massacres, things like that. I haven't touched any of that stuff yet. So yeah. I'm still working my way through some of the genre. I've just kind of, I'm still in the point where I've got like, my, my feet are dipped in. Yeah, I I never really got into zombie movies. They're things that I watch, but they're not really my favorite. Uh, definitely like slasher, more serial type things are really more my taste. I generally have an interest. I don't want to say obsession because I'm not the kind of person who actively seeks that kind of stuff out and I don't do like a lot of like research on serial killers or anything but that's definitely something that's of interest to me um so I'm definitely somebody who's drawn to like police procedurals that deal with that kind of stuff um movies that definitely fall into that category I think it's more you know people who are not affected by something and the fact that they're able to like commit such an atrocity against another human that has sort of a fascination element to it. But I agree that horror in general is really good for looking at social issues from all kinds of different sides. Uh, while you were talking about your initial relationship to horror, I was thinking about probably actually the first horror movie I ever saw was I was a kid and I was at a friend's house when we were living out in the Kootenays and it was Children of the Corn, which is a movie about like the small town in like the Midwest somewhere, lots of farmland. And all of these women get pregnant at the same time and they give birth to these weird children that have some sort of psychic connection and they can control people with their mind. And I remember there's a scene where Christy Alley is like lying on a slab in a morgue or something. And she's being compelled to like cut her chest open. And I like got up and I put my jacket on and I went home. <laughs> and like I could, it was, I was like seven or eight years old. Like it was a lot for me. Wow. And yeah. And I don't remember why I had agreed to watch this movie. And uh, I think I had seen, I ended up watching the entirety of The Children of the Corn when I was older, but it's still a very difficult movie to watch. But horror used to be sort of like my genre of choice when I was a teenager, but I've certainly moved away from that much more uh, in adulthood. Yeah, I, I tend to only really like horror if it is, I guess, specifically zombies. But apart from that, it's always when it intersects with something else I love, specifically camp. I love camp, anything camp, but when you mix camp and horror, there's something so great about that. When you mix camp, or sorry, when you mix horror and comedy, when you mix uh, horror and kind of anything, it really adds a lot to it, I find. So that's kind of my love of the genre at this point. Although I am trying to give more classic horror a go. I mean, it's definitely worth watching some of the the older things, but, you know, unless you really have like a stomach for certain elements of the storytelling it can be really difficult one thing that we'll talk about with respect to the cabin in the woods is like there's like a subset of the genre that deals with you know poor ish looking families you know like they're usually 
perceived as being like inbred or something like that, where they're always the villain. Um, there are a lot of movies that fall into that category. Jeepers Creepers is definitely one of them, but a number of other movies that I've seen also have that as like the central villain. Yeah. And then you have like, you know, the Halloween movies and Nightmare on Elm Street, which are more traditional slasher that have more of like a psychological bent to them. And then, of course, you have like the Saw movies, of which there are so, so many. Yeah, the gore porn. Yeah. And I've only, I think I managed to see up to like Saw 3. But I remember, I think I saw Saw 2 in theaters. I know I saw Saw 1 in theaters. But I think I saw Saw 2 in theaters. And like in the beginning of the movie, Donnie Wahlberg is in that movie and he has to like break his ankle or something to get out of a uh, like an ankle chain thing. And oh, it's yeah, like I said, if you like don't have the stomach for that kind of stuff, it can be really difficult to watch, which of course, is the entire foundation of them. Yeah, I'm definitely a horror on my uh, on my laptop in the comfort of my own home kind of person. Not too big a screen, not something I can't just look away from or turn off, not something I can't turn a light on and scream by my lonesome. It's different in every culture, and it has changed over the years, but it has always required youth. There must be at least five. The whore, she's corrupted. She dies first. The athlete. The scholar, the fool, all suffer and die at the hands of whatever horror they have raised, leaving the last to live or die as fate decides. The virgin. Me. Virgin? We work with what we have. So for this episode, Leanne, I had you watch Cabin in the Woods. This is a 2011 film starring a wide cast. Uh, You've got Kristen Connolly, Chris Hemsworth, Anna Hutchison, Fran Kranz, Jesse Williams as the main five. And then you've got a slew of others, including Amy Acker, Tom Lenk, Sigourney Weaver, and many others. This is directed by Drew Goddard. So Drew Goddard's actually only directed one other movie, like a main movie directed credit, and that's uh, Bad Times at the El Royale, which I've always wanted to watch. I did not know that was him. He's more a producer and writer on uh, a lot of other projects. Uh, So this is a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm actually kind of surprised Drew Goddard hasn't directed more after this. I thought he would get lots of opportunity to. Maybe he was just more a writer. So the basic premise of Cabin in the Woods it kind of is exactly that, Cabin in the Woods. It's uh, five friends take a trip to a remote cabin. All sorts of horry, tropey goodness ensues. Though perhaps there's a little bit more at play than just your average creepy cabin in the woods. So I picked this one for you because as soon as we talked about doing uh, our kind of first genre-related episode, and specifically horror, this was another one of my first big jumps into horror as far as something that was, uh, yeah, this is 2011. So I I didn't watch it when it came out a few years after I was dipping my toes into horror and it was scary to me. And I definitely, even this time rewatching it, there's some scary parts in there. There's definitely some like hooks in people's backs and things that are a little bit, but the comedy in it is so good. There's a lot of really good comedy. The writing is so sharp. It's got that Joss Whedon edge to it. 
and I love how it played with the genre. I didn't even know the genre very well at the time. So it was actually really nice coming back to this, having watched more of the genre and seeing how it plays with that a bit more. But even at the time I could tell like it was a pretty sharp and good uh, playing with the genre in there. Uh, so what did you think overall? So going into this, I knew that it was not a traditional horror movie because um, you had recommended that I watch this quite a while back and I never got around to it. And I remember you telling me that it wasn't like really a horror movie. So I already kind of knew that before I sat down to watch it. I really liked it. Honestly, I don't have a lot of negative things to say about it. The cast was really good. They all had really good chemistry. They all really worked well within the archetypes that they were assigned to, even though their characters, of course, are not actually traditional horror archetypes. And one thing that I really liked is because of the way that this movie is framed, where there's sort of two competing things happening, is that there are stakes on both sides. And so it's not just about this random group of kids stumbling into the wrong place and being subject to the whims of some random evil whatever and their fight for survival. It's they're trying to survive, but also... Like, if they do survive, then this other group of people, like, there's much bigger consequences. So that really gave some more weight to the story, as opposed to just, like, somebody coming out of it alive at the end. Like, there really is more to yeah. it than that. I will say, if anyone is listening to this and has not seen Cabin in the Woods, uh, they're obviously, we're going to spoil the whole thing here. And it's one of those movies where... You really should probably watch it without being spoiled to get kind of the most out of it, I would say. It's just a fair warning. Feel free to watch it and come back. Yes, feel free to watch and come back. The framing device you're talking about, definitely. It's great. So we've got like the setup where the cold open is these mundane office workers talking about the big job coming up and, and you know, just talking about boring, mundane office life, really. Uh, and then all of a sudden it just like the screen pops up cabin in the woods and there's like a scream and it, it was just very funny to me because it was right over top of just like mundane office talk and so you've got the two competing storylines of the office workers who basically are trying to kill these five kids to sacrifice them to an ancient god to appease him for another year so their job is to kill these five kids but they have to do it in this ritualistic way and then you've got the five kids trying to survive the night in the cabin essentially and you get constant flips back and forth. And we know that there are multiple versions of this ritual happening around the world. So that if one fails, then if another succeeds, the yeah. gods are are appeased. It was a very fun setup, very clever, and it allowed them to really play with the genre a lot. It was a very nice setup. Um, so actually going into this, one of the first things I want to talk about at least was kind of the Joss Whedon of it all. Because... I thought this was directed by Joss Whedon and watching it and just being like, oh, it's not directed by Joss Whedon. And I think you can actually kind of tell after watching it, because I've watched basically everything Joss Whedon's done at this point. For a long time, I was very obsessed with Joss Whedon. I was super into Buffy and then every other show he did and a lot of his movies and things. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I've kind of soured a little bit on him. But for a long time, he's kind of been heralded as this, like, I don't know, the savior of writing female characters, I guess. He was very, very popular for a long time with all the female characters he wrote through Buffy, 
Angel, Dollhouse, and the like. But I don't, yeah, sometimes you can just kind of tell when it's a Joss product, I find, because while the writing is nice and sharp and there's like the witty banter and everything, there's always just something there that you can kind of tell looking back on. I thought mm-hmm. this was very clean, very slick. I didn't find a lot of the same problems I find going back to other Joss Whedon projects. I think a lot of that is probably Drew Goddard, who clearly had a strong hand in this. I think he was a writer, producer, and directed it. And a lot of the other things Joss has done that I really like, after the fact I've kind of found out has been largely due to a lot of the other people behind the scenes that are kind of what to credit a lot of the greatness for these things are. As is fairly normal. I think it's really easy to mistake this as a Joss product because so much of the cast are people who've worked with him on multiple problems, like Amy Acker, who worked with him on Angel, and then she did, I think it was Much Ado About Nothing, and she's been in some other projects. Franz Kranz, of course. Yeah, she was in Dollhouse. Franz Kranz, also from Dollhouse, just like a lot of cast Mm -hmm. members. Um, Tom Lank, who plays Ronald the Intern, of course from Buffy and also briefly on Angel, just like a lot of people who have been involved in Joss projects in the past, where on the face of it, it's easy to see those people and assume that he's at the head. Yeah, he definitely still, I think he was a credited as producer, maybe a writer on this as well. I think I only saw him credited as a producer. Yeah, that aside, so kind of a lot of this movie, I would say rides on obviously the five, like the the five archetypes uh, as we come to know them, the, the jock, the nerd, the, the whore, the, the fool and the virgin, so to speak. And like you said, they all fit their roles really well. I thought we kind of find out that none of them are exactly that role, which is nice to see in a movie like this where someone is so often just a trope. But in this movie, my favorite example is Chris Hemsworth playing the jock character who Turns out he's actually like a sociology major with like a full ride scholarship. (laughs) I really liked at the beginning before they leave for their trip where Dana's trying to pack some school books so that she has some reading and he takes one of the textbooks and he goes, look, your professor is going to cover this whole thing. If you want some really interesting reading, read this instead. So like right from the outset, without even knowing what he's studying, you can tell that he's got a lot more depth to him, even though he very much physically looks like you know, this jock character that is very traditional. Chris Hemsworth is so great. Honestly, he's so great. Even back at this point in his career, I think this is pre Thor and all that before he'd really kind of blown up. He can really play a lot of layers. Like we don't see maybe the most of that in this. He's not, it's not like a huge meaty role to be fair, but just all the little parts of Chris Hemsworth shining through his comedic timing is great he plays so lovable even when he's like this big dumb jock. He really is like a movie star. Yeah, I loved Chris in this a lot. Just the way that he transitioned throughout the movie because of, of course, in order to make these people fit the necessary archetypes for the ritual, there is outside interference to sort of modify their behavior in particular ways. Yeah. So let's just talk about the characters really briefly before we get too much into the actual plot. So Chris Hemsworth, he plays a character named Kurt, who is the athlete archetype for the story, but is in reality um, a sociology major. He's at school on a full academic scholarship. So like he is a smart guy. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Anna Hutchinson, who plays Jules, who's Kurt's girlfriend. 
And at the beginning of the movie, she's recently gone from brunette to blonde. The way that she is transformed for the movie is that she turns into like the dumb blonde sort of slutty girl. But she's actually pre-med, which is also another area where you have to be like very smart, very um, organized and studious. And then we have Kristen Connolly, who plays Dana, who plays the virgin character, even though like right from the outset, we know that she's not a virgin. Um, She's just gotten out of a relationship with one of her professors and she's still trying to get over that. And then we have Jesse Williams who plays Holden, who is the scholar. And again, like he's also somebody who could equally have been the athlete in terms of his physicality and um, just general appearance. But in a way, like you can already tell what they're going to be, but they are not those things when we yeah, first meet. The them. one exception to that then would probably be Fran Kranz as Marty, who I think is through and through a burnout. <laughs> I don't think they had to try too hard to turn him into the role of uh, the fool. Although it does turn out he's not so much a fool. He's kind of the smartest one of all of them in a way. But our introduction to him rolling up, smoking his massive bong in his car and is like, oh, the police would uh, never pull someone over with this big of a bong. It's just, he's great. Yeah, his insulated coffee cup modified into a bong so that it's uh, inconspicuous when out in public. So it was kind of funny that he was the one out of all of them that probably took the least transformation by the behind the scenes crew, but that kind of bit them in the ass because they spent less time kind of trying to focus on transforming him uh, it turned out he was actually the kind of the key to solving everything. So yeah. Yeah, his sort of the weird the weird paranoia that came with his drug addled state yeah. uh, allowed him to kind of peer behind the curtain, so to speak. So after we meet the the two guys who are just doing office talk, um, characters are called Citizen and Hadley, and Citizen is played by Richard Jenkins, and Bradley Whitford plays Hadley. After we see them, we meet the college students who are going to uh, Kurt's cousin's cabinet uh, for the weekend. And as they're pulling out, there's a slow pan up to some guy on top of the roof who reports that, you know, they're on time. And that's sort of the immediate moment that we get the impression that already the story is not what we think it's going to be. And that there's an interplay between these two. And then their first stop after they leave is they pull up to the very classic gas station. It's closed. It looks decrepit. It looks abandoned. It doesn't look like the gas pumps could or should work. But despite everyone's best judgment, somebody goes wandering inside. And of course, you meet, you know, the character is referred to as the Harbinger, who warns them that... They have enough gas to get where they need to go, but it's getting back that's going to be the problem. And of course, uh, everybody has a negative reaction to this. You know, think this guy is just kind of being weird and annoyed that they have stumbled into this property and, you know, that he's just talking nonsense. And yeah, we find out that he's kind of the first trial for these five, essentially. Like the whole ritual is that they need to willingly take part in it at every step. And he's kind of that warning sign, the first thing. And they do a really good job setting up that with him. I love when um, uh, Holden goes into the gas station looking around. Everything is pickled in a jar. Taxidermy, everything. There's just chains. Everything's broken. There's creepy shit everywhere. It's just like so over the top creepy. Like to the 10th degree or 11th degree, it is 
really, really like hits you in the head with it, which I thought's very appropriate for what they were trying to do here. Yeah, it looks like every sort of yeah. creepy gas station or abandoned whatever in any sort of horror movie about kids on a road trip to somewhere remote. Like yeah. it hits all of those buttons. Even the guy at the gas station is like exactly the kind oh, yeah. of character you would expect to see. There's in a this great type of scene movie. with him um, with uh, I think it's Mordecai is his actual name, the Harbinger, where uh, he reports back into the people in the office who are dealing with the whole scenario, and uh, is just like talking to them, and he's going on and on about um, oh god, what was it? We have to cleanse the world of evil, and he's going on this huge rant, and then just stops. Wait am I on speakerphone? And everyone just like burst out of laughing at this, this like extreme juxtaposition in this whole movie between like the comedy of it all. And then like the horror of it all. And it really just like intersects them at times. Like, very yeah, there's a really good balance between the tension and the violence and the lighthearted comedy just to kind of break it up. I loved the speakerphone scene, partly because it was funny, but it's also like a real dick move. Yeah. Like I really feel for poor yeah. guy to be like, you know, it's not fair. I don't know who else <laughs> is in the room. And then for them to be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah I'll take you off. And then to like, just leave him on speakerphone like yeah. that. It says a lot about the character who is answering the phone and the other people who are in the room who are willingly participating in yeah. this. Citizen and Hadley, the the main two office workers that we are in, um, view that whole lens through, are really great because of how blasé they are about everything and how it just seems so corporate, so mundane, all of it. You'll have a girl being like killed on the giant screen in front of them and they'll just be talking about like the weather or like what they're going to do that weekend. And it's just like, it's a really good lens at which to view some of these like corporate jobs, having worked some of these like big businesses before it's like, yeah, just some of it just kind yeah, of yeah. desensitizes you. And when they say to the guy who's supposed to be sort of acting as security for them in the control room, I think it's Lynn who says to him, Oh, you get used to it. And he says to her, uh, should you? And that's very yeah. true, but you know, it's very common in any kind of job where when you do a thing every day or you've been there for yeah. a long time, it just becomes kind of old hat. So our um, our five characters do make it to the cabin. They do not heed the warning of Mordecai. And at first, it just kind of seems like a kind of rundown cabin in the woods. Everything's going kind of okay. And then they start to notice creepier and creepier things, such as the uh, Holden goes into his room and there's this horrifying painting of these people like skewering this like horse or cow or something. I think it was a cow uh, and like butchering it apart with like their hands and things. It was like disgusting. So he takes this picture off and there's like a two way mirror basically there where he can see into Dana's room and she doesn't know that she just thinks she's looking in a mirror and he's just staring at her. She begins to undress and he has this moment of like, Oh God, do I like, do I say something? Do I just keep watching her undress? And he likes really fighting with himself on it. And he eventually just like kind of bangs the walls like, hey, maybe stop this. And so then they start to slowly unravel some of the creepiness of this mansion. I really liked the mirror scene just because, again, it was another place in the movie to show so much about what kind of character Holden was. Because in a lot of horror movies, like there, of course, the sexual element is very common part of it. Yeah. And there's like, you have the jock who always has the girlfriend, but there's always like one other guy who is sort of inherently creepy. So we see that 
Holden is, you know, he's a relatively honorable guy. And he also confesses to the fact that he had an internal dilemma about telling her about it. And then he ultimately offers to change rooms with her, which again, lends itself to more of that honorability and just makes him such a likable character. I love when they switch rooms too, because then it's the opposite where Dana's in the room with the two-way mirror and she watches Holden. Uh, I think, does she put the, she goes to put the painting back up. Yeah, she puts the picture back up. I like that she has exactly the same visceral reaction to the painting. They both kind of look at it and they go, yeah, no. I like that she has that same moment of like, should she cover it up or watch him undress? Because he's like really fine looking, which also kind of plays into the whole like she's maybe not so much of the virgin character as uh, as the tropes would imply. But she does end up uh, covering it with a blanket or something. So that's good for her. And then after, you know, while they're doing this, we also get a shot back to the control room where we get the further indication of how things are being manipulated. Like, oh, they we've had a room change. We need to adjust yeah. how we're going to pipe in X drug or whatever gas needed to, to make a certain yeah, outcome happen. I really like that they don't try and hold back the reveal of what the office is trying to do. And from very early on, we're clued in to the goings on. Not like the end goal with like the big pit at the end so much, but we know roughly what's going on, which us being clued into it makes the movie really like that's what gives us a lot of the tension, what brings a lot of the humor, the deconstructing of the tropes. So I love every time they flash back to the office. It's some of the best stuff. Yeah. And all of those characters are just so great. And I love how blase they are. It's like, I know that we already talked about sort of the desensitized way that they are, but it's so good. It's, it feels really natural and like even sort of the, the pseudo rivalry between like the command room and the other departments, like the the chemistry department. So I know we haven't talked a lot about Marty specifically yet, but um, once we start getting into some of the creepier stuff at the cabin and all this, Marty is so great in this movie, Fran Kranz, because he brings so much light to this movie, so much brevity. The comedy with him is so great. Every line he says is hilarious through this whole movie. It's actually a very quotable movie. I wrote down a lot of quotes. I love just like when they all are looking at this two-way mirror and he just goes, it was pioneer days. People had to make their own interrogation rooms. (laughs) It's just like some of the things he says are great. And I remember specifically loving this movie because of him. And that's what made it like it was scary. But I wanted to keep watching because he was going to say something funny or like I wanted to make sure he like lived because he was my favorite. Yeah. It really just goes to show like the characters in horror are very important. Like the scares and the monsters and all that. Yeah, you need that's that's part of it. But you have to be rooting for these people to live or there's not really any point to it. Yeah, you absolutely have to care about these characters enough to want to make it to the end to see what the outcome is. Otherwise, it's a waste of your 90 minutes or however long the movie is. I also would maybe say that Marty could be read as asexual in this. I got a lot of that this time. Yeah, I definitely I definitely considered that. I mean, I didn't think about it too hard, just given everything else that was happening in the movie. But now that you mention it, yeah, absolutely. I could see that as being a good reading for him. Um, just to go back to rooting for the characters, it's also really interesting and significant to note that Citizen acknowledges at some point that he is sorry, not Citizen. Hadley acknowledges that he is rooting for Dana to survive because she's been through so much by sort of like the midpoint of the movie 
with all of her friends dying and just like all of the the traumatic things that have happened and she's put up such a good fight to just survive she's really acts as like the center point for the group but she really is a good character that you really do care about so that when she makes it to the end that you know you yeah. care that she has Dana's made it really far. well cast as like or Chris and Connolly as the virgin archetype regardless of whether or not like she's the virgin and all that she is that um, vulnerable yet strong leading female character very um, uh, Chris and Connolly as Dana is very much that even though she's not a virgin she is that leading female character in a horror movie kind of character where she's strong, vulnerable, all those things. And you really, really root for her through the whole thing. She's very like Sydney from Scream where horrible things are happening to her, but she still keeps strong through all of it and has this like presence about her that just makes you want to root for her. Mm -hmm. Okay. So shortly after everybody gets settled into the room, they, you know, do the normal things that kids do when they're out at a cabin. They play around in the lake. They play a game of truth or dare. The scene where... Uh, Marty Dare's jewels so to make out with this wolf head on the wall is truly incredible. It's so uncomfortable to watch because she just goes it was, fully it for was it. It's well done because it started so comical, right? And she's like, oh, who me? And she's like yeah. pretending to flirt with the wolf and everything. And then she goes to kiss it and it gets progressively more and more intense. And like, she's going for it. And everyone's like, oh, wow, that took a shift. <laughs> And then you could see on her face after she doesn't even really know what she just yeah. did or why. Clearly, it's all the the hormones they're pumping into her throughout the movie. They just keep pumping more and more hormones into her, basically. Yeah, the intention is to make her to increase the libido so that she really fits the whore uh, archetype for the ritual. And then moments after this, the door to the cellar flies open, and Kurt makes a comment about, "Oh, it must yeah. have been the wind." Which Marty is correct to question the sense of the statement because, like, really? But shortly after this, we find out that they just have to get these people into the cellar. And there's all of these various items that they can look at and touch and inspect or whatever. And each item relates to a particular outcome for how they're going to die. And while all of this is going on at back at the, the headquarters, they're taking bets on, like, how it's going to happen. And in true horror fashion, it's the zombie redneck family who oh my loves God. to torture people that ends oh. up being the winner. And from there, it pretty much proceeds the way uh, a typical movie with those types of tropes uh, would, where people start dying pretty quick. I love the betting scene so much. So it's this m massive group of people from every department in this office. They're all together. They're all betting um, on all the different monsters it could be. And I love it. The, there's so many things, but at the end when uh, it's like, oh, who had zombie redneck torture family? And like uh, maintenance always bets on them and they won again. And, and then the one girl goes, hey, I bet on zombies. He goes, no, you bet on zombies. Yeah, but this was zombie redneck torture family. It's an entirely separate species. And you know what? <laughs> to be honest, it kind of is like zombies are zombies, but like, Zombie torture redneck family is like very much a specific category, especially for like horror movies. I paused on the board at that point too. And there are several options that no one bet on or that uh, didn't get looked at a lot that I found hilarious. There was the sugar plum fairy. There was witches, but then below it is sexy witches, <laughs> which is great. I love it. And one is just Kevin. 
and no one bet on Kevin. And I'm just like, why did no one bet on Kevin? I want to see Kevin. I think that's a reference to Jay and Silent Bob, Kevin Smith, who was in one of the little cubicles at the end, by the oh, way. Oh, was he? Yeah. Jay and Silent Bob are in the little cubicle at one point. Yeah, I, I did sure. watch this movie twice. And I'm actually glad that I did because the character Hadley always bets on uh, mermen. Yeah. Like he really, really wants somebody to like pick up the conch and like blow it. And yeah. like, that will be what they summon to kill them. And then at the end of the movie, there's basically a couple of the characters make it inside and they release all of these monsters. And he actually dies as a result of a merman. Yeah, it's poetic justice. I love it. Yeah. But it's something that I had missed on my first oh, watch. Yeah. So I'm glad that to make a second one so that I can catch that. He makes a few references to it. Uh, I guess he's the one that like created the scenario with Merman and it, he meant like the, that's Hadley, right? Citizen mentions like, yeah, yeah but it's such a mess to clean up <laughs> and you find out later. Yeah. There's a lot of mess with <laughs> Merman. Um, but apart from the, the betting of it all, which is hilarious and great and really goes to show like how desensitized these people are. Even Lynn who, is kind of above it all. Like you get the sense that Amy Ecker's character, Lynn is not quite at the same level of desensitization as everyone else. She's talking to the new security guard guy about this all. He's clearly not going to bet. And then at the last minute, she kind of like begrudgingly takes out a a bill and like passes it over and bets too. But the actual scene when they're all in the basement, picking up all the items reminded me so much of betrayal at the house on the hill the board game. The whole point of that board game is it just plays out like a B horror movie where the whole time everyone is walking around the house and you're going to different rooms, collecting different items and everything. And then depending on what item you get in what room, it triggers a whole different event, which could be zombies. It could be vampires. It could be aliens. It could be anything. Right. And this is kind of like that yeah. where it like, it could be anything. It could be Merman. So it reminded me a lot of like playing a game of Betrayal at the House on the Hill, which I thought was really fun. I loved when Dana had, so she picks up this journal for one of the Zomber murder family members and she's reading it. And at the bottom of the passage, she's reading, there's something in Latin. And Marty is immediately like, do not read that. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, whatever. It's not like it means anything, but as we know from all kinds of media, television and movies alike, that reading Latin in a book, however innocuous, always brings yeah. bad things. And of course, reading it aloud brought the family back to life. Very the mummy. Their doom. I think that's the first scene too, where we hear the voices or where um, Marty starts to hear the voices around telling them all to do things. Yes. So there's like these subconscious voices talking, but he's the only one that can hear them because of uh, whatever he's tripping on. It does turn out they like changed all of Marty's stash out of all his weed to stuff they'd given him, like specifically to make him more susceptible, but they missed a stash and that's the stash he's on right now. So he's the one that can like kind of figure everything out. Yeah, but that's definitely the first scene where he yeah. hears a voice and there's a female voice that says to read the <laughs> Latin and everybody else is already succumbing to whatever effects have been applied to them. And so Dana reads it and it seems like nothing happens, but you know, that's really where things start moving forward. Yeah. And then we quickly get our first death after that as um, Dana or sorry, not Dana Jules is starting to get kind of out of hand. She's almost out of her mind at this point. She's dancing on this table. Seems like she's completely wasted, super drunk acting. Although I don't think she's, she's had much to drink at this point. 
Uh, and then Kurt is acting a lot more macho and all this. And they end up going out into the woods to like fool around. And of course the zombie redneck family or zombie redneck torture family encounters them fooling around in the woods. I really liked this scene just because of the way that we got to see all of the little things that the control room is able to tweak to make sure that the scenario works out how they want. So they flip a switch and all of these pheromones start filtering up from the ground. And while Jules and Kurt are like making out, they increase the temperature and they make a minor adjustment so that there's like this very soft lighting on a particular part of the forest where they could like potentially have sex. Like it's all of this well choreographed way to make sure that there's some sort of sexual scene that happens, which is a requirement for the ritual prior to the whore being murdered. And the whore has to be the first one to go. It's part of the rules. Uh, So sadly we uh, say goodbye to Jules as um, one of the Buckner family. I believe it's the father, uh, has a huge like chain hook and kind of like, or was that the bear trap? Anyways, like in the back, dragging her along the ground, Kurt's been stabbed. It's actually kind of gruesome. Like <laughs> it's definitely, uh, I mean, I've watched a lot of horror, but it, it doesn't super shy away from going there in a lot of ways. She's just being dragged across the ground uh, and then gets impaled and killed. And then we see the first shot of a thing of blood somewhere underground, like tips over and pours into a thing and starts to like fill up this weird design on the ground that we don't quite see. And it seems like part of the ritual has been completed. And then uh, Kurt does manage to make it back to the cabin, of course, to warn all the others. And then we have the wonderful scene where they're shutting all the doors and everything. And Kurt's like, she's gone. She's gone. And Data goes, what? No. And goes to open the door like an idiot. And Marty's like, what are you doing? And then there's like one of the Buckners is standing right there. And it was like a pretty great extended like kind of chase scene at this point as it kind of cuts I love that she goes, I'm not leaving without Jules. And they like throw Jules' head to her. Yeah. And she, of course, screams and drops it. Yeah, I forgot about that. They throw Jules' decapitated head at her. And she's just kind of staring at it and holding and going, ah! And then just like chucks it across the room as it like bounces. And it's kind of funny. Again, it's another balancing of sort of the horror situation with that little bit of uh, brevity. I think this is where they lock all the doors and everything. And then they're going to go through the house. um, And we should stay together and they panic in the control room because of horror and horror movies. Somebody always says, Oh, we should split up. We can cover more ground that way. And of course, then everybody gets picked off one by one. So they're, as they're creeping through the house, they flip a switch and there's some sort of gas or whatever. And like on a dime, Kurt goes, actually, we should split up. We can cover more ground that yeah. way. And Holden, who I don't understand why he agrees to this. He goes, yeah, that's a good idea. And I have a theory about that. I think it's because Holden is cast as the prep or like the scholar, the nerdy one. And he's actually not very smart. I think regardless of like everything going on, he's just not smart. Like he makes a bunch of bad decisions through the whole thing, I feel like. And that's his kind of breaking of the trope is he's cast as like the nerdy scholar one, but he's actually kind of more of the jock. Yeah, Kurt and Holton probably could have easily been interchanged, but, you know, I guess it doesn't really matter who actually plays the role for the sake of the ritual, just so long as someone does. Well, at at the end, they say that we work with what we have. So Holden and Dana go off together and Kurt continues on. I forget what's to Marty at this point. Does he go? He goes to his own room. Isn't this where everyone gets trapped? Oh yeah, they all go into their rooms and then the doors close and lock. I like that yeah. um, while Marty is in isolation here, 
haha, can relate. Um, <laughs> you know, he starts hearing voices again and he gets frustrated and he gets up and he goes on this whole rant about how his mind belongs to him and nobody's going to tell him what to do. Yeah. He's, being, he's being lured outside. Like, you should go for a walk. Yeah. And, Think I'm a puppet? Gonna yeah. do a fucking puppet dance? And then after I'm going to go for a walk. walk. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then it's shortly after this that we think that Marty dies. He makes it back to the house after being, I think he's chased through the woods or no, or yeah, he's taken out through. He's, uh, he's grabbed through the window and taken out. Um, and there is a big, a lot of noise of like brutally being murdered over a hill where we can't quite see him. Yeah. And then we get another shot of another thing of blood tipping over and filling up another sigil on the ground. And it's, presumed he is dead at that point. Spoiler alert, he's not! (laughs) (laughs) So following this, Kurt and Holden and Dana decide that they need to GTFO. They get back in the RV and they try to head back down through... So when they they got there originally, they have to go through this mountain tunnel and that's significant (laughs) to the whole ritual because it's part of ensuring that the victims of the sacrifice can't leave. There's supposed to be a cave-in so that they're trapped... And this scene is really good because it's a lot of tension with their attempt to escape and the fact that there's supposed to be a cave collapse that hasn't been and trying to trigger it before they get through to make sure that the the ritual proceeds as planned. Yes. Sitterson is running through the building trying to get to maintenance to try and fix this problem they're having to to trigger the break-in as we're cutting back to the RV racing through the tunnel and it's like, yeah, it's really well done, good. really well edited scene. And then everything after this, I really liked. And I was going to mention this earlier, but uh, worth mentioning here. When they first drive through, as we see them go through the tunnel, there's like a hawk or something or an owl. I, yeah, okay. It flies yeah. and it looks like it's going to fly across this cavern, but it hits like this wall. It's like a computer generated scene and it's a wall, which is a really good piece of foreshadowing because shortly after this, after the- I didn't like that. Okay. Okay, so we'll after the cave-in, they have a dirt bike for Kurt, and he has experience, like, you know, jumping all kinds of things. And the plan is for him yeah. to jump across the gorge so that he can go and get help. But in so doing, he also hits this computer screen. And that's where it's sort of, we get further cementing. The characters really understand that, you know, there are puppeteers, you know, somebody is controlling what is happening to them. Yeah, that's when we get Dana going, oh my god, Marty was yes. right. Marty was right, type of thing. Um, this is one of my things I would change in the movie. I wouldn't change a lot about this movie, and this is a minor, minor thing. But because we saw the eagle hit the force field thing and die earlier, then when we have Kurt giving this whole grand speech about how he's going to jump over and he's going to find someone, he'll crawl to safety, he'll crawl to get help if he needs to, he's going to go save everyone. He's going to jump this thing on his bike. We know the whole time he's just going to crash and die. And I don't know if it would have been slightly better if we didn't know that. And we had a little bit of a surprise there as he hits the barrier. And like, of course, we we could assume that would be true. But if we didn't know that that eagle hit the barrier and that it was there, it would have been like, a oh, my God, shock moment, maybe. Yeah, but I mean, have been a little the better. whole movie is really like showing us the behind the curtain before the characters know there is something about the whole big speech Kurt gives like this huge sappy speech about how he's going to save them knowing the whole time. Yeah. He's just going to hit the barrier and die. I just think it could have been good if we didn't know, maybe. I mean, I think it would have been good. I think the way up to this point, the movie has kind of already shown us what we can expect. 
was that dramatic irony situation where yeah. we understand and then the characters are yeah, also it was, coming it's to realization. Irony. There's there's points where like they hold stuff back from us though, like the Marty thing and all that. And I think that adds to it. And there's something to be said about holding back as well. They yeah. really show a lot of their cards and they could maybe at some point support to Nyat. But yeah, that's the end of Kurt. Uh, R.I.P. Chris Hemsworth. You were so beautiful and you uh, died horribly. That just left us or leaves us with, at that point, Holden and Dana. Holden at this point is not quite really cluing in at all. This is kind of more proof of my argument of that I think he's kind of real dumb. Dana's like, yeah, we can't just drive the other direction because Holden's like, yeah, we'll just go back the other way. There'll be a road the other way. Or we'll just drive into the woods and then run. And and she's just like, dude, like, don't you realize what's going on? Like, we're not going to get out of this. Yeah, I think what's happening is he's trying to reason his way out of it. Like, he doesn't yeah. want to acknowledge that this situation is beyond their control. It's like, well, we'll just, we'll find a way out of it. Even though, you know, it's very apparent that the situation is being controlled and, you know, there are strings that are being pulled to ensure a specific outcome. So Dana's come to accept that and he's not willing to accept that. And he's he's sure that there's a way for them to survive. So they go racing back, they're in the RV. And turns out that one of the zombie rednecks is in the RV with them and Holden gets stabbed the throat and they careen off into the lake mm-hmm. and Dana's able to escape. And it's at this point, well, not immediately at this point, everybody in control room, they are celebrating. Yeah. Everybody appears to be dead. The virgin is an optional death. Yeah, it's um, the virgin's she survives, death is optional as long as it's last. The main thing is that she suffers. I just wrote, yes. okay, work. <laughs> Like, it's just like, wow. So she does get attacked by uh, Father Buckner. And uh, shortly after this, we find out that Marty is not actually dead. And it's at this point that the movie takes kind of a pivot where they are able to infiltrate sort of the company. Um, So a lot of the actual suspense at this point is also due to the fact that We've been clued in prior to this that there was only two simulations left running. These simulations are run all over the world, and as long as one of any of the number of them succeed, kill everyone, etc., um, the gods are sated or whatnot, and you're good for another year. Uh, this year, everyone except for the U.S. and Japan has failed already. But right before this scene, we get um, we get the reveal that Japan has just lost their simulation. This is the iconic gif i use all the time of the evil is defeated i did not realize that this yes that gif was from this movie like of course i have seen it hundreds of thousands of times on the internet but i did not realize that it was from this yes and also it's important to note that japan up until this year has had a 100 yeah. percent clear rate they have um, never failed the annoyance of the u.s team yes so the fact that they failed you know basically it was a classroom of nine-year-olds yeah. Who were able to, oh, this is so <laughs> to survive good. this. Yeah, they're just like, da- they're holding like a circle around this evil spirit and like chanting together. And then uh, they turn the evil spirit into a frog. And like the evil's defeated. It just holds the little frog and it is iconic. And then it cuts back to, I think it's Sitterson who's just like screaming the F word at this screen over and over and over again at these children. And it goes, how hard is that to kill nine-year-olds? <laughs> it's like so, so over the top. 
And I guess this must have an R rating because they dropped like 12 F-bombs in like five seconds there. It was great. Yeah, there's quite a lot of cursing in the scene. They find out that Marty is still alive and they're having the celebration and then they get a call on the red phone and a red phone is an iconic uh, item because it only rings in an emergency. So they're celebrating thinking the ritual has succeeded only to discover that it has not because yeah. one of the other people has survived. And then we find out that Marty is alive. Yeah. We go, what one? And then uh, we see Dana <laughs> and all of a sudden we get a, uh, Father Buckner gets hit over the head by the wonderful extendable coffee cup bong, which turns out to be very useful through this whole movie. It's great. The coffee cup ends up being the Chekhov's gun in this movie. Yeah, where, honestly. You know, yeah. We see it a few times and it's, you know, it's the rule of three where it's like we see it, we see it again, and then it has payoff for the third time. So in terms of classic movie formatting, it really adheres to that and it does it in a satisfying way. Yeah. And then from here, it's basically just like a bloodbath. We already know the point of the ritual. We know that the, the blood that we saw pouring down is a representation of each of the archetypes for the ritual, signifying their death. And, you know, Marty and Dana, they realize that, or Dana anyway, she comes to the realization that they chose how they were going to yeah. die. They basically go through like this vault of monsters yeah, and there's go no to one of the Buckner's tombs uh, where Marty has discovered that there's an elevator and he can make it go down. That's the only thing he can really do with it. So they go down into this elevator and they find themselves in this like vault of monsters, which I really like this scene. And you just see hundreds of vaults with absolutely everything you can imagine. Creepy clowns and bat giant bats and spiders and like creepy little twins girls and a ballerina with a teeth for a face and it's like everything. It's a little... Have you ever seen the movie 13 Ghosts? No. That scene reminded me a lot of that movie. And I think it might have been a direct nod to that, but um, that is about a, a house where like in the basement there's like this vault of various huh. horror monsters like ghosts and stuff like that and then it turns out uh trying to just survive in the basement because they know that they're in this underground lair now so they're trying to get them to surrender and all this and they really have no other choice so they let all these monsters out and it just turns into this like extended scene where it's just a bloodbath everyone is dying it's pretty satisfying honestly like we really learn to hate a lot of these office people because especially that last scene where they're celebrating, there's a giant, giant screen in the background just showing Dana being murdered as they're all drinking tequila and partying. They're talking about, what are, you, are, are we going to get our bonus? Uh, do we get overtime on this one? Everyone's yeah. like flirting with each other awkwardly, like it's a, a work office party. And the whole time Dana's just being brutally attacked in the background. It's It's one of the most horrifying scenes in the whole thing for me, honestly, because it's so... Like, just this pit in your stomach the whole time of, like, oh, my God, these people have, like, no empathy at all. Yeah. It's also worth noting, just before Jules dies, the control room is, like, full of male office workers who are just waiting for that moment when she takes off her top and they can see a breast. Yeah. And then when they don't get it at the moment that they want to, there's, like, this groan of disappointment. And it is so gross. Yeah, they really are the villains of the movie. Like, those, the office workers are the villains of the movie. They do a good job of kind of laying that out. Yeah. And then at the very end, we have Marty and Dana. They've come to the room where, you know, the, the blood pools down. 
And Sigourney Weaver's character, she's like the director uh-huh. or whatever. She comes out, she she's explains so good. the ritual to them. Basically, there are these like elder gods who they have to do this ritual in a certain order every year or they'll rise and destroy the world. And if they don't complete the ritual, then they're putting all of humanity at risk. And there's a very fraught moment where Marty and Dana, you know, are kind of trying to make a decision about what they want to do, whether or not humanity is worth saving, whether or not they're going to sacrifice one another so that, or at least is Dana going to sacrifice Marty because he would be the one who would have to die in order to complete the ritual. And ultimately in the end, they decide to just say, fuck it. Say, you know, humanity's had a good run. Dana is fully on board to kill Marty until there's a werewolf creeping up on her and Marty kind of just stays silent, doesn't say anything. The werewolf attacks Dana. There's a big struggle. It ends up that, uh, which I loved, like little Patrice Buckner, who I don't think got to attack anyone until this point. The little girl with one arm and like a little hatchet. And she's just like slowly walking up and ends up like attacking Sigourney Weaver. They fall over. At this point, Dana is clearly dying of all these attacks, wounds she got from the werewolf. And Marty and her just kind of slump down on the stairs. And yeah, just kind of just say, oh, fuck it. The world will end, I guess. Yeah. Also, I think at that point, it's probably too late for yeah. anything further to happen. Because when we meet Sigourney Weaver's character, she says, you know, it's eight minutes to sunrise. Yeah. And the altercation definitely takes at least a few minutes. They maybe have like a few seconds. Yeah. And if she shot Marty... She probably would have been successful. Yeah, but, but she's dying and Marty clearly isn't going to kill himself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, honestly. I was wondering with respect to the werewolf, like if you survive, do you also turn into a werewolf? But I guess it doesn't matter because the outcome is that you're supposed to like get torn to pieces. Yeah. <laughs> I really, really like this ending. It's one of the most Joss Whedon-esque like things to me too. Um, it reminds me a lot of like the final season of Angel and like some of the final ep- the final episode of Angel too. But uh, I really like they're just slumped on and some of their little witty banter they have. I love there's just like this silence. And then Marty goes, you know, I don't think Kurt even had a cousin (laughs) in reference to like Kurt's cousin that's always talked about who owns the cabin. Clearly, Kurt didn't have a cousin that owned this cabin. And they're kind of just at the very last moment piecing this together is great. And then like, I'm sorry I let you get attacked by a werewolf and then ended the world. And all the little uh, nods throughout the movie to like, wow, your cousin is into some weird stuff. Like with the two-way mirror and all of the things that they find in the basement. I think it's a satisfying ending too in the fact that by this point in the movie, we really just hate humanity. Like if this is how humanity is living, that every country in the world is sacrificing like dozens of like nine-year-old kids and like all these people every year nonstop, like really at that point and how little humanity is left in these people, like, there really isn't a lot of humanity left to save that we see in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was like, yeah, fuck it. Kill everyone. Do it. Woo. It like, it was satisfied. I was on board. <laughs> Obviously just in the fantasy element of the movie. Also just like my general feelings about humanity. Sometimes yeah. like if this were a real scenario, it'd be like we deserve it. I like Sigourney Weaver's line when Dana goes, uh, like basically what are we being punished for? And she just goes being young. <laughs> Turns out it's always got to be youth that dies. It's like, yeah, of course. Of course. 
Oh, Sigourney Weaver's only in this movie for like three minutes and she's so good. Yeah, and her appearance is a nice surprise. You're like, oh shit, Sigourney yeah. Weaver's in this. I have my note down here, Sigourney Weaver, in all caps, a little bit ahead of time because <laughs> we do hear her voice over the PA as soon as they kind of get down into the, the laboratory area. Mm. Uh, and I want to also mention, I love that while the monsters are running around, we get this one scene of just this unicorn that impales this dude with its horn as this majestic ethereal music plays so good yeah being gored to death by a unicorn is like a real special kind of death for sure all the little monsters were great i'm sad we didn't see kevin or sexy witches or the sugar plum fairy unless that was the weird little dancing girl with the teeth face i don't know would we have recognized kevin even if we had seen them if it was kevin smith probably (laughs) only if we can infer that's who it's supposed to be why did no one bet on kevin (laughs) maybe kevin has proven themselves to be unreliable in the past (laughs) maybe what object would you pick up to summon Kevin? Or like, what object would you pick up to summon sexy witches? <laughs> it really made me want another one of these after watching this. I know it's like, the premise is good for like kind of one movie in my opinion, but also there was so much cool stuff down there and so much room to like see this from like another country's angle. It probably wouldn't be as good just because the, the charm of it is from not knowing everything the whole way through and all that and the framing device being really fun and clever which is less so when you just keep repeating the same thing. I could be open for some yeah. sort of another movie, though. So do you have any other thoughts on this movie? Uh, no, I think we cover pretty much everything. I think that, you know, while this movie is a quote-unquote horror movie, sort of in the way that it skewers a lot of horror tropes, yeah. like it really, maybe it's just because I've seen a good amount of horror movies, and so I kind of knew what to expect going in. I didn't really find it particularly scary at all. Like a lot of sort of the, what would be like traditional sort of like jump scare moments with the weird bear trap thing. None of those things like really affected me at all. No, I don't generally get super scared from these kind of slasher movies, especially like where it's a bunch of young people one by one getting killed, everything like Scream or whatever. They don't really ever scare me. They're generally not like over the top gory either. A lot of the deaths you don't see in detail or they're quick or just like a splash of blood or a spear through someone or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I have a somewhat low tolerance. So I found a lot of the stuff with the Buckners, like the makeup and visual effects on the Buckners is really good. They looked real gross and they're like torture weapony kind of stuff. Like when uh, Holden and Dana jump into the basement and there's like, you just get hooked in the back and like dragged up and stuff. Like there was some kind of visceral stuff in there that got me a bit. But none of it was me cowering behind a blanket type of horror. Which doesn't have to be. Like, horror doesn't have to be that kind of scary, obviously. But I agree. I think this is that great corner section of horror, comedy, and I would say horror comedy. Yeah. I would firmly put it in, like, horror comedy. And it's got, like, some social commentary stuff in there. Like, definitely one foot in horror, for sure. One foot in kind of the Joss Whedon-y comedy land. Uh, so what would you rate this movie on our scale? Perfect as is, does it need a little ketchup, or would you douse it? I say perfect as is. Like we said while we were talking about it, you know, there's not very much that I would change about it. And I almost have nothing bad to say about it. The, the setup and the execution of the story is really good. There's a lot at stake for all of the characters in terms of whether or not they're just trying to survive or whether or not they're trying to avoid, you know, the destruction of the entire world. So that worked really well for me. Uh, it was a good balance of, you know, the darker, creepier moments and comedy. And I just think it was a really well-balanced, well-executed movie. I agree. I would definitely give this a solid perfect as is. 
there is virtually nothing I would change about this whole movie. The cast, the writing, the direction, the filmmaking, it all really did what it needed to do. And they clearly knew what they were trying to make and how to make it. And their knowledge on horror was very evident. Starling. Wild Clarice. Have the lamb stopped screaming? Dr. Lecter. Don't bother with the trace. I won't be on long enough. Where are you, Dr. Lecter? I have no plans to call on you, Clarice. The world's more interesting with you in it. So you take care now to extend me the same courtesy. You know I can't make that promise. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. So I asked you to watch The Silence of the Lambs which is probably one of my favorite movies. I watch The Silence of the Lambs probably at least once a year or sort of whatever the mood strikes me. I own it on DVD. It's definitely a movie that I would put on as background noise. There are certain parts of the dialogue that I can say along with characters. So it's just, it's a very iconic movie. And I am sort of generally obsessed with this entire franchise. So uh, Silence of the Lambs was originally released on February 14th, 1991. A nice little Valentine's Day viewing. It has a tomato meter score of 95. And it stars Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, Scott Glenn, Anthony Heald, Ted Levine, and was directed by Jonathan Demme, who before directing Silence of the Lambs, seemed to primarily have... Most of his directing credits for music videos or music documentaries, which I think is interesting. He also directed the movie Philadelphia, which starred Tom Hanks, for which he won an Oscar. And he directed the movie Beloved, which starred Oprah Winfrey, which is another movie that also won an Oscar. He also directed the movie The Truth About Charlie. He also directed The Manchurian Candidate, which starred Denzel Washington and also won a or multiple oscars as well as rachel getting married starring anne hathaway and uh ricky and the flash which stars meryl streep which i included just because in terms of the other movies that i listed it seemed really out of left field but and then he's done a lot of other documentary work and i made a note the score for this movie was written by howard shore who's canadian actually he's from toronto and he did the music for the movies Single White Female, uh, The Truth About Cats and Dogs, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Hobbit. He did Twilight Eclipse. And just like you can look at his uh, credits for composition and they're just a lot of really familiar titles. One of the musical trademarks for uh, Shore is that he uses a lot of heavy violin and choir, uh, which is something that we hear a lot in Silence of the Lambs and is definitely something that we will talk about. So Silence of the Lambs as a movie, uh, was nominated for seven Oscars in 1992 and walked away with five, including Best Actress in a Leading Role for Jodie Foster, Best Actor in a Leading Role for Anthony Hopkins, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and it was nominated for Best Editing and Best Sound. Jodie Foster also took home the Best Actress Golden Globe, and then it was nominated for the same categories as the Oscars for Golden Globes but it was just the one win for them. The story is based on the book of the same title by Thomas Harris, 
So the movie follows Clarice Starling, who is in the final stretch of her training at the FBI in Quantico, Virginia, when she gets tapped by the head of the behavioral science unit, Jack Crawford, to assist in the investigation of a serial murder um, by the name of Buffalo Bill. And her first assignment is to interview the notorious cannibal, Hannibal Lecter, a former doctor of psychology, uh, in an attempt to pick his brain for ways to find Buffalo Bill, basically to act as a consultant for them. And the meeting results in a strangely developing relationship between Starling and Lecter and the solving of a case that helps to jumpstart Clarice's career with the FBI. Clarice Starling is played by Jodie Foster. Hannibal Lecter is played by Anthony Hopkins. Uh, Scott Glenn plays Jack Crawford. Anthony Heald is Dr. Frederick Chilton. Ted Levine plays Jane Gum slash Buffalo Bill. And Brooke Smith plays the character Christine Martin. So what were your initial thoughts on this movie? Um, so going into this movie, I didn't know anything about Silence of the Lambs, really. I know it's like crazy because of how popular it is. But this is a movie that I have vivid memories of going to Rogers video constantly seen at Rogers video and that iconic poster of like the black and her face and the butterfly or the moth. And I had no clue what it was about. I knew it was scary or it could be scary and that it wasn't something I was allowed to watch or recommended to watch as like re- really young kid. But then as I got older, all my friends had seen it. It was something they would always say like, Oh, it'd be too scary for you, Greg. And I never watched it. I had no clue what it was about. It's like the title made no sense to me. The poster made no sense to me. Like, what's the Silence of the Lambs referring to? I know it's about some guy named Hannibal or something. I think he like eats people. Why has she got a moth on her face? Didn't make any sense. So it's very interesting now watching the movie and understanding all the references of like what the moth and like the title and all that. So I'm glad I watched it. Thank you for picking this one for me because I feel like a large chunk of pop culture is like slotted into place now. And I understand a lot of references to other things. So that was kind of my history with the movie. As far as the movie itself, I enjoyed it. It was very different than what I was expecting. I kind of knew who Buffalo Bill was, but I didn't know it was like about catching him. And Hannibal was really like helping them and everything. And that I didn't know he escaped. And it was, I didn't know there was a sequel that now I want to go watch. Yeah, it was just a lot of firsts for me. Yeah, so Silence of the Lambs is the second book in the Hannibal series. The first book is called Red Dragon, and there are two adaptations uh, of that one. There's one from uh, the 1980s. I think it's around 1988. I think it's the same year Silence of the Lambs, the book came out, called Manhunter, which didn't do very well. It's an interesting movie to watch. My dad bought a copy and we watched it, and it's okay. And then there was another adaptation made, I think it was in the early 2000s, and that stars Edward Norton as Will Graham. And then there's Hannibal, which is the third one. And then there's another one called Hannibal Rising, which is Hannibal's origin story and is largely not considered to be particularly good. And then, of course, there's the Hannibal TV series that was done by Brian Fuller. I haven't watched the entire series I've seen two and a half seasons, so I'm not sure exactly where it ends. It covers the relationship between Will Graham and Hannibal prior to Hannibal's arrest, which is where we meet Hannibal initially in The Silence of the Lambs. So I didn't know if Hannibal was based on a real person or if there was a book or any of that stuff. So I fictional, all that obviously, right? And all based on this book series. That's interesting. I didn't know that any of that. So Hannibal, as far as I know, is a completely fictional character. 
However, Buffalo Bill Jane Gum is actually based on the real-life serial killer Ed Gaines, who um, similarly was a bit older than Buffalo Bill was when he started as a serial killer. I think he was like in his uh, late 40s, but he was uh, known for killing young women and skinning them and, you know, doing sort of some gender deviant type things with their parts. And there's also elements of Ed Bundy in James Gunn's sort of M.O., like the scene where he kidnaps or when he abducts Christine Martin, the use of the fake cast and trying to get her to help load the sofa into his van is something that Ted Bundy used as a way to abduct women, at least on one occasion. So while Hannibal is fictional, the other serial killer is a conglomeration of a couple of different things. The uh, podcast You're Wrong About, which I've mentioned before, their 21st episode is Halloween special about Ed Gaines and slasher movies, um, has a very sympathetic discussion of who Ed Gaines was without sort of making any apology for the things that he did. And they talk a lot about the way that Ed Gaines influenced film media, specifically slasher movies. So there's a lot of movies that are based on his crimes. So it's definitely worth a listen. I also recently watched, it was like a three-part series on Netflix called The Bundy Tapes, which I didn't really know a lot about Ted Bundy beforehand, other than like he was this very notorious serial killer. But you get to hear him talk a lot about himself and sort of the way that his crimes played out, his whole arrest and everything. So very, very interesting and easy to see the way that that overlaps with some portrayals of serial killers in film media. So when this movie opens, um, Clarice is running a a course at the FBI Academy. We immediately know that she's in the FBI Academy. She's got a sweater where, you know, it says FBI Academy on it. And while she's running, she gets interrupted. She gets told that Jack Crawford wants to see her. And I really liked this whole scene where she's like running across campus, running through the office and everything, because it's a really quick and easy way for us to see what kind of training is involved. There's like some guys who are climbing ropes and there's a classroom full of people who are disassembling and reassembling and cleaning guns. And there's just like a whole bunch of things. And it was a really nice way of showing us sort of everything without having to linger in any particular place. And it also shows how unusual it is for Clarice to be a woman in this environment. Like she gets on an elevator and it's full of nothing but men and she barely comes up to anybody's shoulder. Like there's not very many women throughout the whole thing. So it just really is a really good contextualization and really good introduction. Yeah, I made a note of that as well. I Same thoughts, really. I really liked the extended opening. I thought it was interesting not only that it was obviously because she was a woman, but also her height was constantly made reference, or not reference to, but made note of with her standing so close to so many other people being so much shorter than everyone else. Also, there were fair few women there, but all the women there were dressed very office-like, assistant-like, like, you know, skirts and all the nice prim proper. She's like dripping in sweat, hair back, and like very not feminine at all. Yeah. And it's very stark contrast to everyone else. There's not a lot of dialogue the whole time through, and it's just, it's really good. I just wanted to make a note that while Jodie Foster played the role, originally Michelle Pfeiffer was cast to play Clarice Starling, but she ended up backing out of the movie because she had nerves about the subject matter. And as much as I love Michelle Pfeiffer, I think that Jodie Foster was a really good choice because she has a, a particular look about her that I think worked really well for Clarice in terms of like where she comes from 
And when we learned her backstory, you know, small town Virginia, lived on a farm. I, I don't mean that in a, a mean way, and I'm not quite sure exactly how to explain what I mean by that. You know, Michelle Pfeiffer probably would have done a great job, but I feel like Jodie Foster was just kind of like the right choice. I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer could play Jesus Christ and nail it. She could do anything. <laughs> she probably could. But I agree. Uh, Jodie Foster, this is maybe one of the very rare exceptions when I would say someone might do a better job than Michelle Pfeiffer at something. No, I definitely agree with that. I think I, I watched part of it or most of the episode of, on the YouTube channel Be Kind Rewind on this Oscar win for Jodie Foster. I believe she yeah. fought very hard to get this role from what I remember, that she really wanted this. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. I did watch that whole episode, but uh, not recently enough to confirm. But I'm pretty sure that that's correct. She is very well cast, I agree. So Clarice finds her way up to the behavioral sciences unit and she goes into Jack Crawford's office where he is absent from at the time. And there's a wall that has all of these different pieces related to the Buffalo Bill murders, you know, pictures of bodies and, you know, different news stories and all kinds of sort of different things that are related to it. After a moment, Jack Crawford appears in the door and I've seen this movie a number of times like I probably have seen this movie 10 or more times like quite a lot and watching it for the sake of the podcast you could very clearly see Jack's manipulation of Clarice very early on like he called her to the office and I think he sort of intentionally created this scenario where she would be alone in the office to see all of this so that he could gauge her reaction before sort of engaging her in this other task that he had initially wanted to ask her to do, which was to go and visit Dr. Lecter. Yeah, this is a very interesting first uh, introduction to his character and their conversation here. I really was puzzled by a lot of it. At this point in the movie, and kind of the whole movie, I had a lot of questions about his motivation specifically. I was still, I'm still to this, I've only watched the one time, so I still don't really know why he picked her for this. I know why Clarice did such a good job in the end, and I know why she was, how she ended up being the hero, all that. Like, it's very evident Clarice's strength through the whole movie. But I don't think that he expects that of her. I don't think Jack really is expecting Clarice to turn out to be as strong-willed and as competent as he thinks. Or am I wrong about that? Does he see something in her? Or is he just using her? I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, even though I've seen the movie a number of times, I don't really... Like, I agree that his motivations are murky and they're never really made bare. Like, I think part of the reason why he picks her is because he knows that she's interested in working with him once she becomes an agent. And so he uses that as an excuse. He sees her, I think, as, you know, this very malleable person that he can mold and manipulate for his own purposes. And I think partly sending her to visit Dr. Lecter is a test in a way, but Definitely there is an underlying motivation that we're never really aware of. And I think this is um, Jack Crawford's sort of murky motivations is something that's really well developed in the Hannibal TV series, where, again, you know, he is a very manipulative person with respect to his relationship with Will Graham. But we don't really sort of fully understand all of his motivations all of the time. But he's definitely got this underlying manipulation that you really pick up on throughout. Yeah, my best read of it is that he knew Hannibal enough to know that 
she would be someone his type, like kind of like uh, the creepy doctor. Who was it? Is Doctor Frederick says, um, uh, "Are you ever his taste?" Yes. Dot dot dot. So to speak. Clarice is definitely the kind of person that Hannibal would be fascinated with. That's clear. And I think that's a large part of it, sending him there because he knows he's not speaking to anyone. He'll speak to her. And I think it's like you say, he thinks he can kind of manipulate her. Clearly, that's also Hannibal's fascination with Clarice is I can manipulate her. Everyone in this movie is really just trying to manipulate Clarice in some way or another. And that's kind of the best part of her is that she is aware of all that, I think, the whole time. Like, even Clarice is hard to get a beat on sometimes, but I think she's very aware of how everyone else sees her, and she really uses that to her advantage, I think. Though it's not, like, super surface level all the Mm -hmm. time. So Clarice goes to the Baltimore Hospital for the Criminally Insane to do this interview with Dr. Lecter, try to get him to, allegedly, to fill out some form so that they can create a database, um, try to figure out what makes him tick. And when she first arrives, she has this extended meeting with Dr. Chilton, who is the head of the hospital. And I'm really interested in knowing what your thoughts are on this portrayal of Dr. Chilton, because he is, well, I want to hear your thoughts first, and then I'll tell you my own thoughts, because this is one of my favorite character portrayals in this movie. Ah, honestly, I don't have a ton to say on Dr. Chilton. I thought he was, like, I wrote down here... Uh, at some point just that like every man in this movie is so disgusting and awful and everyone treats Clarice like an object basically or like a a toy and children is just like from the moment we meet him is so gross so disgusting to her like the immediate like flirting with her and then as soon as she kind of like deftly buffets away that and like very business he kind of is just like ugh, and turns on her and is very frank and short and just like dismissive of her at that point and i don't know i he's horrible he's awful i don't like him (laughs) yeah he is horrible i love this portrayal of him because anthony healed just brings this level of marmy desperation to this character he is so desperate for clarice to acknowledge the fact that he has Hannibal Lecter in his care, that he's, you know, this incredible psychologist. He's just looking for any kind of recognition that he can lord over Lecter, who he thinks is his peer and who Lecter, like, thinks is no better than some schmaltz on the bottom of his shoe. So the fact that you acknowledge that he's terrible, but... um, I mean, I I honestly didn't read much... It was my first time watching the movie and I paid almost no attention to his character. Immediately, I was just like, oh, he's just an asshole. And I like didn't really look into it much more than yeah. that or think about it much more well, than Well, because there's the scene later on in the movie after Hannibal Lecter is being transferred from Baltimore to Tennessee and Chilton is in front of all of the reporters and they're trying to get information and he is working his best to just make sure that all of these reporters know his name and that they put his name yeah. in their article because he's just so desperate for any kind of recognition with respect to Hannibal Lecter because he's really not a good psychologist. He's very full of himself and it's so obvious like on the face of him. Yeah, for sure. He's uh, he's very transparent compared to most of the characters who are holding a lot in and who are really hard to read almost everyone in this movie 
he's so transparent and just like everything on the outside. Yes, absolutely. Like everything is just right there on the face. Like even when, you know, Clarice rebuffs his offer to show her around Baltimore, that minor slight shows on his face so clearly and it immediately changes. Yeah how he interacts with her or even you know he does all of the thing to tell her about the hospital while they're going down to where the cells are and when she says oh i think it's better that i talk to dr lecter by myself like again you know that hurt is apparent on his face and he immediately turns uh, a cool shoulder to her well you could have told me that and saved me the trip down here what did you think of clarice's first interaction with hannibal lecter she's very sort of awkward it's very obvious that she doesn't really know what she's doing and he is immediately zeroing in on the fact that her credentials are temporary and that jack crawford sent him a trainee and how dare he and what is he playing and he immediately sees the manipulation that jack is trying to play on clarice yeah um this whole extended scene even coming down to this area is where i definitely got an appreciation for a lot of the filmmaking in this movie i really like the shots as they're walking down to this area and we get the harsh red lights and like the slight dutch angles and like the zoom ins and things where it's framed in a, like a very specific way to that we're switching areas and like, we're going to meet Hannibal now and the red lights and the harshness of everything. And then at the same time, uh, I think it's Chilton who gives her the photo of what happened to the nurse. Yes. I love this. This was very effective where uh, she's given like a Polaroid or whatever, um, a picture of, of the body of this nurse. And he explains this whole thing. Like last time Hannibal got a little free or whatever we took him, or he was complaining about pains or chest something, pains. chest pains. He bit off the tongue of this nurse, all this stuff, right? He's explaining in gruesome detail, all this as Clarice is staring at the photo. We never get to see the photo, which is such like, it was such a well done element because like it's, all being described to us as she's staring at it but since we don't get to see it it's just the the creepiness of that and everything you're filling in your mind is probably worse than what's actually on the photo and just seeing the horror on her face staring at mm-hmm. it i really like that and then going to see hannibal for the first time like oh my god anthony hopkins like he is going for the fences with this portrayal right off the bat every time it pans across and his eyes are just like so wide. And he's just like, it's it, the whole frame is just his face and it doesn't cut away. And he's just talking with such vigor as his eyes are bulging practically. And it's like, he's so creepy. It made me so tense. Uh, and he's just standing there. He's not doing anything. He's not saying anything particularly creepy, but it's just the tone the way he holds himself, the way he's presenting himself, and the way Jody's reacting to all of it, it was so creepy and tense. Yeah, the the dynamic between the two on their first meeting is very good. Like, she's very out of her element. Um, you could definitely get the impression that Hannibal is of a certain class. He's very educated. He carries himself. Um, very good posture. His manner of speech is like, it all speaks to a particular class of person. Yeah. So, and I mean, Hannibal as well, you know, he's shoulders back. He's got, you know, this wide barrel chest, you know, like the way that he carries himself, you know, it's like a lot of serial killers where when you look at them, you are surprised to think that they are capable of the crimes that they are charged with because they either look very normal or they don't look like the kind of person who could commit those types of crimes, especially Hannibal, who is incarcerated because he 
murdered people and then he ate parts of them, which is such a cultural taboo, at least in the Western world. I, I don't know. I didn't get any sense. I got a full sense from him that he was capable of all that just by looking at him. Like, yes, he was carrying himself in like a way that he was definitely had an upbringing. It was rich. and You got all that kind of stuff from him, right? But he was super fucking creepy. And like, yeah, of course he murdered a bunch of people. Like I had no doubt in my mind he murdered a bunch of people. Well, yeah, of course. In this particular context, you know, he's in this plexiglass cell. He's in the thing, like everything yeah. about him. For me, it's, it's not until later that I got the sense when he kind of settles into his conversation with Clarice, the second and third time kind of, he almost tones down his like, it's almost like he's puffing out his chest at first, almost like a bit like he is really kind of overdoing some of the creepy at first. And I think he settled, I mean, either I got more used to it or he kind of settled into it a bit more. And then I could kind of see elements of him, especially the further and further you get into this movie where he kind of puts on a bit more of the charm and you kind of, I don't know. He has a very interesting dynamic about him. I agree. Mm -hmm. There's such civilized like parts of him that basically the, between the first and second times of meeting Clarice, I think it's after Clarice leaves and Miggs is like throws come at her right and it's just like it's it's very visceral disgusting yeah. and, and then you find out that hannibal basically whispers horrible things to Biggs until he kills himself and because he offended clarice and that how dare he and like he's like very protective of her and all this and it, like this dynamic very quickly builds well the whole thing about hannibal is that he doesn't tolerate rudeness he's very much about you know social etiquette yeah so doing that to clarice you know, somebody that he's met, he's found worthy and interesting is is rude. So skipping forward, um, I want to talk about the visit to the storage facility, specifically with respect to editing and music. Because like I've said a couple of times already, I've seen this movie many, many times. But like, despite that, the editing of the scene when Clarice is inside the storage facility and she's creeping around trying to, you know, not touch too many things, but also looking for whatever it is that uh, Lecter sent her there to find. It's like the editing of the scene with the music and the strings. There's such a tension where we are equally as scared of what Clarice might find as she is. And, you know, ultimately finding the head in the jar is not wildly horrifying in terms of what she possibly could have found but the build-up to that reveal was just really well done yeah for sure i like that uh, when she gets cut uh on the door trying to crawl into the storage facility a lot of attention is drawn to it and you know that's going to come back obviously when Hannibal can like smell it the next time she visits yes. him and Hannibal is such like a sensory person and like all the smell and like how he could just figure someone out mm -hmm based on how they smell was very creepy and good. Uh, no, I agree that all the music and everything in the, in the, that storage facility scene, they built, they built tension really, really well in all those scenes. A lot of it's Jodie Foster's really good at acting tense and like, she carries that really well too. Yes. Like same thing in, in that final scene uh, when her and uh, Buffalo Bill are like going about the house, chasing after one another and stuff. And it's very, very tense as she's going door to door in this house Similar things, very similar feeling, probably a lot of the same music cues even. I didn't make note of them, but... It's good that you say that because the composer, uh, Howard Shore, he specifically said that what he wanted to do with the music for this movie was make it so that you didn't really notice it. So it created a lot of atmosphere, but it wasn't something that you were always 
aware of, which is something that certain movies do a lot. Like they really want you to be aware of the music during a certain scene. So the fact that, yeah. you know, you couldn't really say, oh, this song or this, or this piece of music or this piece of music, like that was an intentional choice. And I agree, a lot of the movie music throughout, it was really just part of the scene itself. It didn't really detract or draw attention to itself. Another part of the movie I want to draw attention to was the fashion. Obviously set in the 90s. It is set in the 90s, right? Now it's filmed in the 90s, but it's all set modern time, I see. I mean, it's 1991, so the fashion is going to be a little bit of overlap between late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. It, It definitely was like early 90s fashion to me. I... There's a few outfits specifically that like Clarice wears that I was obsessed with. I want to find her green coat so badly because it is so amazing. This like a long green coat with these oversized pockets and it's so it's retro, but I love it and it's so good. And the funny part I found was that uh, when she goes to see Hannibal the one time he goes, love your suit. And I was like, yeah, same thing, Hannibal. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> and he actually makes note note of fashion a lot in this movie. And I thought that was very interesting. He's constantly making reference to like basically doing like the Sherlock type thing where it's like you're wearing second rate shoes. You're wearing this, you're wearing that. You're trying to get out of your uh, your rural upbringing and like dress the part, but you're never going to get rid of this, your accent and all this. And like he is nailing all these aspects of her. And a lot of it comes down to like what she wears too, which is very interesting to me that a lot of note is taken in how she dresses. Yeah, absolutely. I love the scene with Senator Martin that you were referring to there, where, you know, he's being like the absolute most, you know, he's not being helpful. Oh, that's the, that's the Senator's. Yeah. Sorry, yes, yes. That's the Senator's suit he's making yeah. reference to. He's really razzing her about her missing daughter. And then, you know, just at the, the peak of this conflict between them, he throws out, love the suit, like the most amazing delivery ever. Love your suit. But yeah, I think... It was a great, it was a great suit. That like really dark, dark green with the like gold bits and everything. It's a great suit. Yeah. But I think his attention to fashion and everything, again, it comes to the fact that he's really aware of like social etiquettes and class related things that he's able to even identify the fact that Clarice has a designer bag, but sort of everything else about her is trying really hard, which is not something else, not something that anybody else might be able to do so easily. It's a little bit like Kate from the Lizzie McGuire movie in that way, you know, where she walks into the hotel room and she can immediately go this, this, and this yeah. is different about you because she comes from a, a particular social circle. Yeah, social yeah. circle, social class, where those types of things are important enough that you can identify them at a glance. You heard it here first, listeners. <laughs> Kate is Hannibal. <laughs> I don't mean to suggest that in the least, but there's... Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> Interesting. No, the very good point, though. I, yeah, I like how Clarice is shown being very, like, more tomboyish. And then when she goes to see Hannibal and such, she's clearly making an effort to play this part that she maybe doesn't fully belong to. And Hannibal can instantly point that out about her. Yeah, just, I don't know. I have made a lot of notes about the fashion this whole time. I really, really enjoyed it. And it was really good. I wanted some of these pieces, yeah. honestly. That kind of... So let's skip ahead a little bit, and we'll talk about Clarice going to the examination of um, Frederica Bibble's body. So she's in this small town, and they're looking at the body of the first girl who was abducted, but the third girl who was found. So this again goes to the editing, where she's at the funeral for somebody else. 
there's a funeral happening. And we get the flashback to yeah. Clarice at the funeral for her father, who was a police officer when she was young. And a similar cut happens when she's leaving the Baltimore hospital, where as she's coming out the door, we get a nice uh, scene transition to when she's younger. And those pieces of editing in those contexts were just, they were great. Really put her in the scene, told us a lot about Clarice, added a lot of emotionality. And then also turning a corner to the examination of the body, Clarice's interaction with these police officers who clearly don't respect this young woman who's, again, you know, the framing of her, they're all much taller than she is. And Jack Crawford has already created a situation where he has put her as lesser by saying, oh, we don't want to talk about this in front of, you know, her, which he addresses after the fact. Yeah, I love that she brings that up after to him, like, hey, you doing that really, like, puts me in a position, like, where I'm not going to yeah. be respected. And and I do think over the course of this movie, at the beginning, Jack Crawford probably really doesn't think a ton of her. And she's just kind of a pawn in his, like, she's the one that's going to get him to talk and do what he needs. And by the end of it, he's like, okay, yeah, I really underestimated Yeah, her. another thing following the examination of the body, which I don't want to go too far away from because we'll talk about the moth, which is related to the movie poster. But while they're in the car, after he you know, says, you know, I did this thing that really, that really rankled you, he also asks her to provide sort of a loose profile for who they're looking for. And he admits that he's impressed by her level of knowledge and her ability to sort of piece things together in that kind of way. So there's definitely a perception of her that is changing from its initial into something else. So during the examination of the body, um, they discover that there's something placed inside the victim's throat. And it's a, a cocoon for some sort of insect. And Clarice gets to take this to these two guys who work at like the Smithsonian or something. I don't know. I loved this uh, scene so much. The guys yeah. were so great, so fun. I love that they came back. I specifically loved that the one doctor is like openly hitting on her. And when she asks if that's what he's doing, there isn't some sort of coy playing off. He is very forthcoming. He's like, yes. And um, her response to that, I don't know. I just like their character interactions quite a lot. At first I was like, oh, these guys are kind of fun. I like the just ignore him. He's not a yeah. PhD line. I, all the guys in this movie are <laughs> shitheads, though. They're all awful. <laughs> like, honestly, they're just bad. Uh, yeah, they're just, why does everyone have to hit on her? Why is everyone so smarmy? I get, like... I think they use that a little too much. Like it's very effective, obviously that like all these guys are see her as like an object of desire and like are hitting on her, like ever she goes and she's not receptive to any of it, but like, it just happens so much. It's like every time she goes to meet a new person or a new guy specifically, they always hit on her first. Well, it's like, oh my God. And I think that goes back to what Hannibal talks to her about sort of what does Buffalo Bill as this, serial murderer like what do they do it's like you covet what you see every day so it's the idea reinforcement of the idea that yeah. Clarice is this woman is a desirable figure for men and that's reinforced every time she interacts with everybody but yes I I can understand that constantly having that come up can be frustrating but at least with this particular character unlike everybody else like his interest in her is very straightforward he thinks she's interesting and he's would like to pursue that whereas Hannibal Lecter Jack Crawford you know all of these other people there's some underlying motive that we're unaware of and that very much at odds with this direction yeah for sure 
The other thing I liked about this scene is that we get a lot of information in a very short period of time. So we know that it's um, a death's head moth, which is what we see on the movie poster. We know that it's not a moth that's native to the United States, that it has to be specially imported, that the person who imports them offers a lot of care and affection to them. And then we get a beautiful edit transition to... James Gum's house where we see all of these moths and we get further confirmation that he is the killer. Also after this, this is when Catherine Martin gets abducted. So as or as I said early on, he uses something out of Ted Bundy's playbook where he wears a fake cast and he's trying to maneuver some piece of furniture into a van and Catherine Martin being, you know, a soft-hearted individual, she offers to help and when he gets her inside the van, he bashes her on the head and he abducts her. And so Buffalo Bill's entire MO is that he abducts larger sized women. That's something else we should talk about is the fact that there's a lot of fat shaming in this movie. Like the fact that these women are what would today be considered average size, you know, like a size 14 is an average size for most women, but everybody, yeah. all, you know, they talk about bigger girls or even when Clarice is talking to James Gum, unknowing that he's the killer um, towards the end, he says, oh, was she a great big fat person? You know, like a lot of really negative yeah. terminology with respect to these women's bodies. I was confused by it a little bit because obviously Catherine Martin, the person he abducts in the movie that we see a bunch through the movie, we get her perspective a lot. And I thought she was a good character. I like that we get the short scene of her before she's kidnapped that kind of sets up the kind of person she is. And, and then we're constantly kind of flashing back to her trying to really struggle to survive and mm -hmm. stuff. But she's about the same size as Jodie Foster. Like, she's not that much bigger than Jodie Foster. Yeah, it was just like she just seemed like an average size. And yeah. she's the only one we really see a lot of. So she's the we're assuming that's the size of most of the people. And it was just like, this is a weird amount of fat shaming. Yeah. Like there was a lot of reference to it. And it's because like he need, he wants a lot of skin or whatever. To, to, well, like, he starves them down a little bit so that they're a little bit loose. So yeah. it's easier to skin the parts of them that they need. I don't know. It was yeah. just weird. Um, I actually found myself identifying quite a lot with Catherine Martin in this part. Like when she's in the car, listening to music really loud, like singing along. And then she gets out, she's talking to her yeah. cat at the window. Like, those are all things that I do on a regular basis. I think she is a good character that a lot of people would be able to see themselves in. And I probably would fall prey to, you know, that kind of sympathy of somebody yeah. who's clearly encumbered or disabled yeah. and offering well, to, to help. And I really like that we see her hesitate a couple times to actually go help him. Yeah. She sees it, wants to ignore it. And then she thinks about it. She's going to leave. She thinks about it again. And she eventually goes, hey, do you need a hand yeah. with that? And it's just like, she clearly knows it's dark. She looks up at her cat again. She looks over at her door again. She knows it's dark. She knows there's not a lot of people around. And she's clearly not dumb. But at the same time, it's such a good setup. And he's so innocent mm -hmm. seeming. And he's doing such a good job of just like struggling, struggling, struggling over there that it's like, she just gives in and goes and does it because she's such a good person. And they do really good job setting her up. She's a very good point of view character. Speaking of Catherine, just for a second, like I was super, super uncomfortable in all the scenes. That's the, obviously the point of Buffalo Bills in the basement, specifically her, like trying to get the dog to come down so she can like threaten him with the dog and like, and her like screaming as this, like, uh, like music is playing and all this. Yeah. And like, 
and her seeing the the remains of the last girl who tried to scratch and claw her way out and the little fingernail dug in the wall and stuff. It was so gross. And it like really got to me, honestly. It like, ugh. it was like heebie-jeebies a lot of those scenes. Yeah. I was watching it on an iPad for the most part. Uh, and I was able to kind of just like, it's a small little iPad. I'm going to kind of like not pay as much attention <laughs> here. Yeah, I I think uh, Catherine is such a good character. Because even when Clarice finds her, you know, she's saying, oh, oh I love calm this. down. Yeah. Somebody else will be here soon. We'll get you out. And she is like not having it she is not gonna be don't you leave me here you fucking she's bitch. like not gonna be calm because somebody's here to rescue her because yeah. nothing is definitive she's like i want out of here and i'm not gonna you know be placid yeah. because someone is telling me to like she's in a really desperate situation and i think that's probably yeah. a more realistic portrayal of like how somebody in that situation would react if somebody's like hey she's been there for She's been there for yeah. days. She is at her wits end and she's been fighting so hard and being starved and like, and for someone to come and be like, Hey, uh, I'm just going to leave you again. And like, yeah, no, it was, it was pretty realistic. I, I wrote down like, yeah, I probably would, I would probably do the same thing. Yeah. And I mean, at that point, like, it's not like Clarice said killed Jane. Like she was just like, Hey, I found yeah. you. There's more people on the way. Like she doesn't know where he is. She could possibly die. Like there's no guarantee that Catherine's going to get out of there. And some, you know, reassurances from some random person without any immediate action is, you know, not really that reassuring. So before Clarice gets to the house, um, she goes to visit Frederica Bibble's house. And while she's looking around, she finds these pictures that are tucked away, these Polaroids of Frederica, where she is in her underwear and she's sort of, you know, posing for somebody. And then I love the moment when she is looking in Frederica's closet and she sees this dress that has these darts in um, pattern paper pinned to the back. And she recognizes the pieces as the same ones that were cut out of Frederica's back and that, you know, lightning recognition and from this point, it's just like a series of really great shots edited together. There's a lot of urgency where she understands what Buffalo Bill is doing. She knows a lot about like yeah. what his skill set is. She knows that he's like got to have a house that he probably is nearby. And of course, Jack Crawford is, you know, brushing her off. He's like, oh, we already know who it is. We're on our way. Don't worry about it. And mm -hmm. that just creates such good tension for Clarice to be like, okay, well, I'm going to go follow this other lead by myself. And at this point, we know that she knows where she's going. And then the editing when they are at the house in Chicago and they're ringing the doorbell and the doorbell is ringing in Jane Gum's house. The two scenes edited together yeah. is so well done and then in the end it was really it, it got me honestly i when the whole time the doorbell is ringing and jim gum enters the doorbell and he's and he's making his way up there to the doorbell and we're expecting him to open the door and it's gonna be it's gonna be the fbi J jack crawford the fbi and it's clarice and she's stumbled upon him and at this point doesn't quite know that yet and it's like oh my god and it, it is very well edited before we get to the rest of that though i do kind of want to go back and talk about specifically the transfer with Hannibal. Okay. So there's a few times before this we haven't really talked about where Clarice has gone to visit Hannibal. The one time specifically where this is after Catherine has been kidnapped and we know she's been kidnapped and we know he's about to kill again. There's a, a lot of urgency immediately thrust into the plot. She brings him a basically like a deal. Like if you help us save Catherine you can get transferred to a better place. You're going to get one week a year or whatever on this island where you're kind of free. 
and like this great sounding plea deal if you help us and she's alive in the end type of thing it is i think does she, do you think she knows because it's a fake deal like jack sent her with a fake deal he did not clear it with Catherine's mom the the senator mm-hmm. senator martin it's not been cleared with her at all it's a fake deal do you think Clarice knows that when she hands him the deal? It's mentioned that she has she had some hand in crafting it to make it. Okay, I think I missed yeah. that part then. Oh no, it it is Clarice who helps this because it's her idea to make the island that's named that goes. It's actually Fool's Gold or whatever. Or was that no? The the name of the island is like an anagram for something, right? No, the name that he gives Senator Martin for who the fool yeah is. that that's that's Fool's Gold, but the name of the island is actually something else that Clarice picked and, and later when they meet he's like that was a nice touch Clarice like naming the island oh, what was it it was something uh, clever and witty that like a very Hannibal-esque thing that she had turned around on him that I really liked that she picked the name of this island that fake island that he was going to get to go to that was actually I forget what it was yeah yeah but this whole thing essentially leads to the deal falls through because he knows it's fake and this is when Chilton gets a real deal with the actual Senator Martin and is able to kind of swoop in and he's going to get transferred and all this. And Oh boy. Uh, So during the transfer, uh, which at this point I'm just thinking to myself, okay, but last time he like had chest pains and he bit a nurse's face off and like, there's something that's going to go wrong with this transfer. I hadn't seen the movie. Obviously I didn't know something was going to go wrong, but it was very clear to me that something was going to go wrong with this transfer. Children's a bumbling idiot. This clearly wasn't going to be done. Right. So they have Hannibal temporarily set up in this lavish ballroom in this makeshift, like dog kennel pen. It was a pretty big in the cell. Middle it's probably comparable. Yes, but it reminded me of a, it was a very large version of those things you buy to keep a small like dog in. Like, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. The little like, octagonal shaped pens that you put on the ground your dog in it was just very big version of that and there was no glass separating anything there was just like a few little boundary things around it they had this like stupid thing where they'd like go in and like chain him to the side and then they'd bring in his food and like it was all just like i can see something easily going wrong here hannibal's very smart something is going to go wrong. And that's when we get that great moment from before where Chilton, he doesn't have his pen. Uh, and it turns out that Hannibal has uh, swiped it and has part of it that he like swallowed and uses that to... The yeah. pen is significant because when we first meet Chilton with Clarice the first time, he tells her all manner of things that she cannot pass to Hannibal. She can't give him a pencil. She can't give him a pen. She can't do any of those things. And then when they're preparing Hannibal for transfer, there's like a very delicious close-up of Chilton's pen on a yeah a blanket in Hannibal's cell and he uses like the nib from this pen to unlock the handcuffs during this scene so there's just like a lot of you know tell show and like follow through on all of these things honestly this scene is like the whole transfer scene when he escapes in Baltimore is probably my favorite scene in this movie from his interaction with Clarice to the escape to everything I think it's really interesting to note the deference that the police officers give him. Like they're willing to give him a second supper. They give him a great deal of courtesy in how they address him. You know, when he says, Oh, please mind the drawings. You know, they take the opportunity to like move that stuff out of the way. Like this man is a convicted killer and a cannibal. And like you were giving him a lot more, but he's a white man with a doctorate who has got an upper class accent. And like, even though he is a cannibal serial killer, 
all those things still give him some amount of power. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that he, you know, has a particular manner of speech and the particular way of carrying himself offers him a great deal of deference that he wouldn't receive under other circumstances. It's just interesting. It's just, yeah. I I like this scene too. Like the whole time when Clarice comes to visit him here, she kind of sneaks in behind Chilton's back to talk to Hannibal one time before she kind of gets yanked away and get this short conversation with him. And this is where she kind of starts to lose her cool a bit. She's under a lot of pressure. She doesn't have a lot of time. It's a really great scene. Mm -hmm. And I love the constant back and forth where like Clarice has like a little bit of an edge over him clearly. And like in the previous time with like the deal and all this, and now he's kind of got a little bit more and she's the more desperate one. And there's like this back and forth. That's really good. I love the scene or the part where he says, people will say we're in love. Yes. Because honestly, that is definitely something that people would say, but also like given the dynamic of the relationship, it's so ridiculous, but it's again, it's another well-delivered line on Anthony Hopkins part. I also like, this is around the time where a lot of the, I think it's the guards or the cops are talking about like, he's some kind of vampire. Yeah. <laughs> like on, honestly, he kind of is. <laughs> it's creepy. <laughs> Yeah, and then all these, the the whole breakout is so funny. It's really well done, but it's so funny to me because, like, there's so much incompetence on so many levels here. Watching all these police officers, like, the 20 of them running around this hotel, like, when they're going to, like, Hannibal pulls this elaborate scheme, basically, where I guess he was really lucky that one of them looked like him because he mauled up this guy so badly, or he mauled himself really badly so that he would look like and, like, tore the face off this guy. So that he would look like he was dying on the ground and he was actually the cop. And then they would escort him out on a stretcher thinking he was the cop. And then he took the cop's body, dressed it up like him, threw him on the roof of the elevator. It's like this whole elaborate scheme. And the cops the whole time are just running around like chickens with their heads cut off. I love how they all hold their guns like they've never held a gun before. It reminded me of like like improv class acting being cops. They're holding them so far away from their bodies and just pointing them at everything. And they're all like jumping around madly. And it's really funny. Yeah. There's definitely an air of anybody could get shot at any moment, but yeah, yeah, I agree. There's a particular level of incompetence that's shown because the ease with which Clarice is able to gain access. Like she just like tells the most surface lie and they just are like, sure, check your gun. Like, no problem. Oh, oh, 100%. You just know he's going to break out. He's in a dog kennel in the middle of like an opera house. Like, it's crazy. He bit a nurse's face off. He had chest pain. Like, he is fucking dangerous, yeah. guys. Like, why are we giving him second dinner? He might be a vampire. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was great, though. And then from that point in the movie, he's on the lamb. Is that what the reference yeah. is? He's gone. Yeah. He's free. Like he he murders everyone in the in the ambulance and escapes. Like he's being escorted by ambulance. They think he's the other guard, and he just like yep bites everyone's head off or whatever and just runs away. The ambulance is also another uh, example of the foreshadowing of Chilton's warning about what happened with the nurse. Is like oh his heartbeat never went above eighty five, and so yeah, yeah he's supposed really to be like basically going into cardiac arrest in this hospital. And like, he's totally normal that he's able to, you know, pull the face off and, you know, pull it over on these paramedics because he has this ability to control, you know, his cardiovascular system in such a way that is dangerous to other people. Or he's a vampire. Or he's a vampire. I'm honestly kind of team vampire right now. Yeah, I was not expecting the movie to go that direction. I didn't know 
this being my first time that Hannibal was going to be free and just running around and stuff. I was like, oh my god, Hannibal's free. I kind of expected this movie to close out with a scene of like Clarice coming to Hannibal in his cell and being like, I did it. Even though you tried to throw me up the trailer or whatever, I got him and like, I'm triumphant or really like have this moment where like I played you Hannibal or whatever. Like that's kind of what I thought the movie was going to end. Like I really didn't know that there was another movie or anything. So like, Oh my God, <laughs> it really uh, changed everything in that second. We should act. definitely get you to watch the rest of the series then. So let's just jump forward to the end. So we have Clarice. She shows up at James Gum's house, but she doesn't know that he is Buffalo Bill yet. And he is, you know, buffeting her questions. He's not so casually asking about the investigation. Oh, do you have any suspects? Are you going to catch them while he's looking for this business card? And then we get one of these moths that flutters out. And like, again, it's another, you know, lightning moment of understanding and then it just charges forward into, you know, this very tense scene of um, Clarice chasing, you know, him into the basement. She's closing all the doors. She finds Christine. She, she's an FBI trainee there on her own. She's never been in this situation before. And it's just as much about survival for her as it is about, you know, stopping this guy. Yeah. And, you know, the scene where she stumbles into the room and he pulls the power and he's got the night goggles is such a charged moment. And, you know, that clicking of the safety off the gun that signals where he is that allows her to like empty her clip is such a good scene and such a good way to end that altercation. Yeah. One thing I noticed when I was watching this is just Clarice is panting so loud. Like, oh my God, like, I understand that she's stressed and this is a difficult situation. But, you know, if you're casting around in the dark for somebody who has the potential to kill you, you know, like panting so loud that they could easily hear you anywhere is like not doing you any benefit. Yeah, she's like smacking about the room with her hand too, making decent noise for sure. Before that night goggle scene as well, as she's in the basement and uh, finds Catherine and all that, what I thought was really good about that in parallel to like the quietness of the scene when she's in the dark and the night goggles and everything, when she's in the basement, it's so noisy. There's Catherine screaming. The dog is barking. There's music playing. It's so loud from so many different sources, all the slamming of the doors. And that was a very different way of making tension Mm -hmm. than like your average, like, quiet like creepy music playing type of thing it was like noise overload Mm -hmm. it was like Clarice was like adrenaline pumping place to place to place door 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 and like the tension in that scene was really Mm -hmm. good too so at the end of the movie Clarice graduates she gets a phone call from Dr. Lecter congratulating her letting her know that he's got no intention to kill her because the world is more interesting with her in it uh, any the final thought? Um, I just had a couple other things, uh, specifically with like the ending and um, Hannibal saying like the world's much more interesting with you in it and all this. Earlier in the movie, when Clarice finds out Hannibal's escaped, everyone's like, "Oh, Clarice, aren't you worried?" And she's like, "Nah, he's too classy to kill me," kind of thing. Like she doesn't say that, but like basically, like I wrote down, like, "Eh, he's totes chill. It'd be rude for him to come and eat me." Like. <laughs> She just has an understanding of him, like, he's not going to come after her, which I thought was really good and interesting. Like, she just, she already knows him well enough to know that, like, she doesn't really need to be worried about him coming to kill her. Again, it comes to that social etiquette. They've developed this relationship. She has shown him politeness, and he has shown her politeness. 
So for her to like not have done anything to justify him coming after her, for him to do so would be like a faux pas, essentially. So uh, the only other thing is kind of like we talked about with Cabin in the Woods. This is another movie that I wouldn't say falls like purely just in the horror camp, obviously. What would you kind of put this movie as? What are your feelings on this as like a horror movie? I wouldn't really classify it as horror. It's really much more psychological thriller that's definitely where i would put it but because yeah because you definitely you picked it for our horror episode kind of thing and part of that is because when this movie won all of the oscars that it did part of the perception was like oh it's like the first horror movie because of the the subject matter that it dealt with so it kind of sort of falls on the periphery of horror and i mean you get a lot of sort of hitchcockian type things where like there's violence that happens, but it takes place off screen. Like the description of what happens to the nurse. And then we get the picture that we don't get to see. And like all of the murders of these women happen off screen. So, I mean, there's definitely elements and certainly we would refer to some of Albert Hitchcock's movies as horror, but they definitely function much differently than some of the movies that we think more traditionally of as horror. Yeah. It's definitely like a thriller suspense drama it's got its its hand in a lot of those and i mean we do get that one scene of hannibal like chewing on a guy's face like there are some sort of horror elements yeah i it was an interesting one for me to watch for as far as the horror genre because like i said before i didn't know anything about this movie going in and i thought it was full-blown horror i expected this this picture of this person with like a moth on their face like i don't know maybe they're getting eaten alive by moths silence of the lambs what's that even mean maybe they're just like i don't know a bunch of people are being silenced a bunch of people are being killed maybe they're being killed by lambs i don't know so it was interesting to figure out that it's like a reference to which we didn't even talk about to clarice's backstory where she ran away from this ranch she was living on after uh, her dad died um because she found all these lambs that were going to be slaughtered and she tried to save them and she couldn't and like the, the the screaming of these lambs going to slaughter was just like so ingrained in her head that she kept having like nightmares of it. And it was very effective, like metaphor and reference through the movie and with the moss and everything. Like it was interesting piecing that all together, mm-hmm. but no, I, I didn't know this was going to be more like the suspense thriller thing. So I was definitely pleasantly su- surprised with that. I would definitely put it in like part horror for sure. So on the catch up scale, where would you place this? movie um uh i i would have to place it on the perfect as is like there was minor things that i didn't like but a lot of that was not stuff you could really even change because it would change so much of the movie like yeah a lot of the guys were smarmy assholes but that's the point yeah a lot of the stuff with buffalo bills kind of like maybe i don't know it's hard to say if it gets to the point in 2020 where it's offensive things like that where it it's painting bad portrayals of certain groups and, but all that, like it's, that's part of the movie. That is the movie. Um, and it makes it what it is. And there's not really anything you could change in this. It's very classic. I can see why it is such a beloved iconic movie. Perfect as is for me. Yeah. It's definitely perfect as is for me as well. Um, obviously it's a movie that I enjoy quite a lot and it's something that I return to on a regular basis because I, uh, enjoy the story and I, enjoy the characters because it's more than anything. It is a character driven story and all of the 
characters in it are very compelling and well acted and just create a very interesting, engaging story. And a large part of that is because it's a, a relatively faithful adaptation to the Thomas Harris novel. And, you know, when you have good foundational characters to work with, that definitely helps. So that's it for us this episode. Join us again next time when we catch up on another movie with each other.